One of the most amazing things happened in the news this week. Three sailors were trapped on a desert island and wrote SOS in the sand and were rescued miraculously. And reportedly, people in Melbourne have been writing SOS in their backyards ever since, but they are very far from being rescued. Well, 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 welcome back. We have an amazing show lined up for you. We have Gideon Rosner here, who's from the IPA, the Institute of Public Affairs. Now, he's also in the world's most amazing documentary called Another Way, and you can see that at anotherwaymovie.com. Gideon, welcome to the show. Thanks, mate. Great to be here, joining you uh, from the People's Republic under house arrest. How is Melbourne treating you at the moment? Well, look, it's treating me personally okay because as terrible as the situation is, as much as I hate the fact that I can't do what I used to, uh, you know, I can't take my girlfriend out to dinner, I can't, uh, you know, go out and see friends and so on. Uh, I'm locked in my own house all day long. You know, I'm one of the lucky ones. I have the kind of job where I can uh, wake up in the morning and still carry on basically as normal via Zoom in my dressing gown. Um, But the people who are really suffering are the thousands of people out of work. I mean, you know, my dry cleaner, texted me who's uh, only survived by the way because he's done a deal where he can um uh you know um with the, with the australian government and gets a bit of work laundering army uniforms but he says this whole lane has just collapsed you know two of his restaurant businesses next door have gone out of business and i went out the last night before the the second lockdown came into effect before they shut the pubs again and i, I gave them a very good send-off i must say but it was such a sad night i mean that the owners even the staff had tears in their eyes um, you know, people are miserable here, just miserable. It's palpable. Um, we, uh, you know, people who believed in all this for the start, people who were social distance warriors to begin with are now turning. Um, I, I think there's just this sense that what's happening here is just so needless. And uh, it, it confirms the old adage that a government that's big enough to give you everything you want is also big enough to take away everything that you have. And I think that's the way a lot of people are feeling. It's also that kind of start and stop that people can't really deal with, right? It's like, oh, we're coming out of lockdown. Actually, no, we're not. And I think they're already thinking about stage five restrictions. Is that right? Or is that just conjecture? They've mentioned it, but Christ, what what would stage five look like? You know, Wuhan style, well, people inside their own homes. Yeah, they're they're, they're threatening stage five. But this is the thing. You're right. People are, don't, you know, it's stop, start, but it's also so much uncertainty. I mean, Andrew says, oh, you know, I come out and do a press conference every day. But he doesn't answer any questions and he threatens things like stage five without talking about what uh, could trigger it, what it would involve, how long it would last for, what it would mean for everybody, how many jobs would, would be lost, what it would mean for mental health. Uh, his, his press conferences have taken on this villain, you know, vaudeville villain showmanship to them. You know, the, 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 the latest measures were a, two, a three-part se- uh, series. He had, the, on Sunday, he announced, stage four in all in all its horrors on monday he announced which businesses would close and which would stay open and then as the grand finale he announced a whole suite of new penalties for people um he, you know but if you're gonna if you're gonna if you're gonna make what is undeniably the most dramatic incursion into our rights and liberties that we've ever seen on australian soil at least explain it to people at least be up front mm. i mean let's not let's not Mince words here. Daniel Andrews has suspended Parliament and put the state of Victoria under martial law. You can be stopped in the street by the army and even the police 
to ask for your identification identification papers. You know, the same kind that are used to you know, travel permits, the same kind that are used to keep the North Korean hoi polloi out of Pyongyang. Uh, this is this is. I hate to use this word because every other bastard's been using it in this debate, but this is unprecedented to the extreme. You know, what's the old adage? Those, the, the, you trade liberty for safety and you deserve neither. And that's the way we're heading in the, in the People's Republic. And you're right. He hasn't answered any questions really. And also the Victorian health minister isn't answering questions either. She just kind of said, oh, you know what? I'll give you a written response. What is, what is your views on, on that uh, kind of leadership? Oh, well, that, that just shows how hopelessly out of her depth that uh, Jenny McCarkos is. So your listeners who don't, who didn't tune into the Victorian Upper House broadcast as I did yesterday, uh, the, the story is Parliament has been basically suspended until uh, March. Uh, so the Upper House has used their numbers. You know, the government doesn't control their numbers. So the Upper House forced an, um, a, a sitting of the Legislative Council and Makarkos begrudgingly turned up to answer questions as health minister. Uh, and every single question her response is, well, I'm, I'll be providing a written statement on notice. Even, even questions like, when were you first informed of the problems with hotel quarantine? Uh, even questions like, will you resign? So I think partly it's obfuscation, partly it's just extraordinary arrogance um, and a contempt for the parliament, but it's also that Makarkos probably couldn't answer the questions even if she wanted to. She can't stand up to the scrutiny of the state opposition. She can only give mealy mouth dances uh, to the Victorian press gallery. How is it that Parliament can actually be suspended? Is that a decision that the Speaker makes or how does it work there in Victoria? Oh, you're testing my, uh, the limits of my knowledge of um, standing <laughs> orders. I, I presume that the House can just vote to adjourn until whatever stage it likes. So they, you know, the lower House voted to adjourn until whenever and uh, the, the Governor, I, I guess, acts on the advice of the Premier as to when to reopen Parliament again. But you'd have to talk to a constitutional uh, expert or somebody, you know, around the traps in Spring Street. But, yeah, that, that, that's, the, I guess, the other element, though, that all, everything is legal. As far as we know, I mean, nobody's tested it, and I hope somebody does bring a case before the state Supreme Court to try to overturn all of this stuff. But the the Public Health and Wellbeing Act, which was passed by John Brumby in 2008, allows the government to basically suspend uh, the ordinary processes of government and put the chief health officer in as dictator of Victoria, the, the Bambi-eyed and hopeless Brett Sutton. <laughs> Uh, and his lunatic uh, deputy, actually, she's been given the heave-ho, uh, Annalise Van Diemen, the one who compared the coronavirus to the Captain Cook landing. Um, and, she, and even she got away with it for a long time. She kept her Twitter account. She kept running press conferences. I mean, the, the shamelessness of these people. And that's, I guess, another point that the, Andrews is, is normalising the fact that the, the public service can be extremely politicised and, and have no consequences. We basically have a political class that is not only covertly left-wing and, and trying to extinguish our freedoms and take over our lives, but they, they're so blatant about it. And they're so blatant about their politics. This is, this is the most ex- extraordinary regime I've seen on Australian soil. It, it is so... It is so... It has departed so much from, from basic principles of Westminster democracy and even the rule of law. It's staggering to see it happen so quickly. I don't understand the radio silence surrounding Melbourne. Maybe people just don't know what's going on. So here's a little clip from Daniel Andrews, the Premier, and his trusty sidekick, the Police Commissioner. 
I can announce today a new on-the-spot fine. It is in fact the largest on-the-spot fine for an individual on the statute books of the State of Victoria, $4,957, uh, but ultimately uh, that's a $5,000 on-the-spot fine. We've had to smash the windows of people in cars and pull them out of there so they could provide their details. So what's the consensus in Victoria? Are people actually enjoying this lockdown? Are they uh, supportive of the lockdown? Because I don't understand how people can actually be in that frame of mind. What do you see in your fellow Victorians is the question. Well, it's interesting. So as you may know, I and the IPA released a video that was very critical of the lockdown and the measures in, in April. And at the time, that was an extremely uh, controversial position. I had friends calling me up saying, geez, do you really know what you're doing? And I, I, I lost friends, quite frankly, people who thought, oh my God, you want to kill grandma and all sorts of other silly things. Um, but that position has since become on the cusp of being mainstream. And now I have people calling me up and saying, actually, you know, I think you were right in, in the first instance. I think that people were willing to go along with all of this to a point. I think during the first lockdown, there was this idea, you know, people genuinely believe what is, I think, been the greatest lie in this whole saga, which is we're all in this together. And they all genuinely thought they were doing their bit. I think what changed things was the protest, uh, the Black Lives Matter protest, in which 10,000 people gathered in the centre of Melbourne and other capital cities, but, you know, this is a Melbourne-centric problem at the moment, uh, and and for, with basically no consequences. I think the three organisers were fined, a thousand bucks or something. So at that point, people thought, well, well, the hell with this. You know, I've had to close my business. I've had to not see, I've, I've had to miss uh, seeing my family. I've, I've missed the birth of my um, newborn grandchild. Um, I've had to live with, uh, you know, in, in isolation and all these left-wing lunatics can go out and protest, no problem. Now, to be very clear, so, you know, so just to finish off that point, the, at that point, I think people started, uh, the, good, the goodwill was lost and it was very clear that there were double standards of people. Now, to be very clear, I don't particularly want to shut down protests. In fact, I think it's terrible um, that when a protest is shut down, I think, and, and in fact, I don't agree with a lot of their prescriptions and a lot of their analysis, but I think there is a problem with, with Indigenous incarceration in this country. But, you know, the right to protest is obviously a very important right, but so is the right to earn an income. So is the right to move around your own city and your own state. Uh, so is, frankly, the right to go to the pub with family and friends and, and, and enjoy life as long as you don't hurt anybody else. Uh, if, if I can't go to the pub and I can't see my mother for Mother's Day, then I'm sorry, uh, left-wing lunatics will have to stay home too. But that is not the calculus Andrew's made because I think there was a, is a very crude political calculation at play um, because small business don't vote for the Labor Party. Uh, black Lives Matter people do. So he couldn't go after the black... It couldn't be seen to be arresting people for saying Black Lives Matter, um, but he can, you know, ruin the, the butcher down the road or the, the restaurant down the road or the cafe... Uh, for which somebody's mortgaged their house and their entire future. Who the hell cares? They don't vote Labor. That's the that's the the crude calculus. It it is really, it's almost like an oligarchy. It's a it's a it's a plutocracy. It's it's very very it's a very very nasty dynamic. People will say, "Oh well, look, you're just you, you're just valuing jobs and money over people's lives." Obviously. So, what would you say to that sort of argument? Well, I'd say, firstly, go down to a Centrelink queue and tell, talk to me about human life. You know, talk to somebody who's on the verge of killing themselves, 
and talk to me about human life. Talk, to, you know, talk about um, mental health problems that will skyrocket. Talk about uh, the cancer patients that haven't had their treatment because hospitals have been kept vacant and tell me about human life. Um, that's the broad point. But secondly, people are, yeah, they're, they're too, and I get this on Twitter all the time because I'm a uh, perennial massacrist and I you know, love to have people abuse me all day long. But there are people who say, oh, you know, you, 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 you're happy to kill people so your share portfolio doesn't dip. I wish I had a share portfolio for one thing. Um, but secondly, uh, this is not about the big end of town. Uh, the, you know, people of means will be fine. Uh, wealthy people will be insulated from this by their, uh, by their assets. Their, 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 their portfolio will take a hit. They won't have as much money as they used to. Nowhere near as much, but their lifestyle fundamentally won't change. This will affect ordinary people, ordinary working people, uh, especially young people who tend to work in hospitality jobs, which has been singled out and bashed up over this crisis, especially people in the hospitality businesses who struggle to turn a profit as it is um, in, in, under the nightmare that we put small business through in this country. Uh, this is, and the people that will do the best out of this are politicians, bureaucrats, big public health, academics, um, health bureaucrats, people who are safe and comfortable in their six-figure taxpayer-funded salaries, dreaming up absurd and cruel restrictions that people, uh, the, the, the people most affected have to follow. Um, that is what gets me, the idea that you're selfish if you want to go back to work. No, it is selfish to ruin thousands of lives just so you can feel a little bit more safe uh, when you leave the house uh, for, and, and more protected from, and admittedly a very bad disease. But, you know, government should have stuck to its knitting from the beginning. You know, government should have uh, isolated the vulnerable and done a better job at managing quarantine and all sorts of other things. And some restrictions were, were necessary, mass gatherings and so on. The current ones might be strictly necessary, in, in, unfortunately, because of the stage to which it's gotten. But, you know, the government couldn't even install installation in people's houses without burning them down. How can we expect the government and the state to manage such a grotesque exercise in population control without any externalities and any consequences? Uh, this was doomed right from the start. I like how Midnight Oil sang that uh, song, How Do We Sleep While Our Beds Are Burning? And then he ended up being responsible <laughs> he for burning houses. <laughs> yeah, but I feel a bit sorry for Garrett because he actually tried to blow the whistle on the whole thing and Rudd said, no, 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 just wheel it out. She'll be right. Where do Victorians go from here? You're in stage four lockdown. It doesn't seem like there's much of a plan. Uh, where where do you go from here? Well, I, I you know the, the the state elections in 2022, uh, and and I think this will be going on for a long time, a long time. You know, we, we, I've always been saying it's not the second wave we have to work worry about. It's the third wave and the tenth wave and the twentieth wave. Are we going to be seesawing in and out of this situation every time cases creep above? you know, 50 a day? Well, probably yes, because what can Andrews do? Why, why, is it, why was it necessary to shut down businesses uh, during the first and second lockdown, but not the third or fourth or fifth wave? This is the last chapter of Atlas Shrugged. This is, um, we, we just need a John Galt. And I don't, and, and I, and I don't know who he is or she. <laughs> Michael O'Brien, maybe. Yeah, who is John Galt? That is the that is the question. I think I'm going to rename the podcast to that actually, although there might be some licensing issues. So far, we've been talking about this issue on their terms. So, if we had our way, or, or what would you advise the government to do in in a perfect world? What would the government's response be in a libertarian world? I guess to this uh, to this virus. Well, that's it is an interesting question because 
before this all happened, I would have told you that, uh, and and I, I can't speak for ANCAPs and people like that, but broadly speaking, libertarians believe in, you know, the, the night watchman state that does a few things the private sector can't. Defence, um, uh, public safety in terms of violent crime, uh, dispute, dispute resolutions, um, a safety net for the most vulnerable, uh, and uh, miscellaneous events like, for example, a genuine public health emergency invo involving a highly transmissible disease. These days, I'm actually not sure that the government can even get that right. Um, the private sector seems to have done much more in combating this than, than, the, um, than the government has. Look at New South Wales. There's the occasional outbreak there. Who, who, you know, and I have to give Gladys Berejiklian great credit for not shutting the pubs a second time around despite coming under pressure to do so. She's restricted them a little bit, but, you know, it is what it is. Um, but, you know, everywhere you go, when, when the restaurants were open for that month-long window, even on the last night, even on the last night before the government shut them, uh, you know, my girlfriend and I were sort of wandering around uh, engaging in the 1159 swill, as I called it, and all the bars were still making us sign in, still making us sanitise our hands, still seating us 1.5 metres apart, still knocking us back if there, there weren't enough people. No business wants to, to be responsible for an outbreak. There is a very clear uh, commercial and indeed moral risk in that. Um, you, you go to Coles and I've had you know, some bad things to say about the big retailers, but to their credit, they're doing the best they can. Uh, they, they've got sanitizer and they've got people wiping down the trolleys and everything else. Um, but back to Gladys, you know, there have been outbreaks at pubs and restaurants, sure, but, but the caseload hasn't soared. They've been generally managed quite well because restaurants and the private sector has been very good at keeping details of people who are infected and very good at, at making sure that any outbreaks are minimal at best anyway. Look at Victoria and one single government stuff up has plunged the entire state into martial law. So what can a, what, what would libertarians say about, uh, about the government role in a pandemic? I don't know anymore. I genuinely don't know. Um, you know, I, I, I guess the, at the very least, you'd have to say the, the role of the state could be limited to uh, or could include, uh, again, isolating the sick, and unfortunately, that may involve slight incursions into personal freedoms, but not as severe as the ones we're seeing, certainly. Um, helping people who are vulnerable to the disease and have to isolate. And with what we've spent on JobKeeper, we could have had the, a, a souped-up meals-on-wheels scheme. You know, the, the, the most a Rolls-Royce. In, you know, instead of having the army kick down the door to make sure we're all complying with the terms of our house arrest, the army could be uh, going door-to-door -door giving food packages to people like they do in, in cyclones and things like that, you know, disaster relief work. Why, why, why didn't we try that in first instance? You know, why, why was mask, and this is the other thing that gets me, why was mask wearing a last resort, not a first resort? Why did they lie to us and tell us that masks made no difference? Um, or, or at the very least, we're too incompetent to know that they made a difference when anybody with any semblance of common sense would tell you that they have to do something, yet we were told not to wear them before they made them mandatory. You know, they, they took the engine out of the car to make it safer before they thought about installing seatbelts. Yeah, and, and it was so funny when Daniel Andrews said, look, if, if you're not sick, you shouldn't wear a mask. That's not the way they should be used. You only wear it if you're sick. And then five minutes later, actually, everyone should wear it or else you'll get a $200 fine. And they do it all with a straight face. They've never said, we were wrong. We're sorry for giving you the bad advice. They just pretend like... Up is down, and when they when they and when there's no other way out, they punt it off to some sort of Mickey Mouse inquiry, like hotel quarantine, so they can say, "Oh, it's under review." And do you know, actually, as we speak, probably or already in the last few hours, the um, the 
hotel quarantine commission or inquiry, whatever it is, has met to determine whether stage four restrictions make it possible to continue with the inquiry just during the duration of the lockdown. So they found, <laughs> a, they found a way to punt it down. I don't know what the outcome was, but I'm, I'm, I can hazard a guess as to what it is. I mean, gee, I, you have to, you know, I've spent some time in the, around the traps, you know, I've worked in politics for a while. I've been a Liberal Party member since my 16th birthday. I mean, I'm, I'm a, bit, a bit of a political animal at heart. Uh, what Daniel Andrews is doing is monstrous, but Geez, he leaves it all on the field. He's he's using every trick in the book. Uh, you know, he's a, he's a he's a monstrous and evil human being. But he's not not the worst politician in the world. I can tell you that for free. Uh, so, what would your last last bit of advice be to Victorians? What hope do you see? Like, what should we do? Is it just the voting booth, or, or what? What would you like to say to your fellow Victorians? Look, never forget and be very and we and we being libertarians have to seize the narrative to the extent we haven't already. There are a lot of people out there who are saying this is a crisis of capitalism. Only the government has saved us. The government had to ensure that, uh, the, you know, the, the, the shops stayed open and, and all sorts of other things and the people were given enough money to, uh, to live on while business was shut. No, the government rightly, if clumsily, compensated people for the, the act of shutting down entire parts of the economy. This shows the failure of the state. It shows what the state is capable of uh, for the most. And, and there are pages of quotes that I've read in recently about the fact that the, the one of the most dangerous forms of authoritarianism is that which uh, is done for apparently benign or even helpful purposes. This, is, this should show people in a glaring, obvious way uh, why we should distrust the state. And again, I'm sorry to use this quote again for a second or maybe even the third time, but it proves the adage that a government big enough to give you everything you want is also big enough to take away everything that you have. So maybe we'll leave the COVID stuff there. But you also have been doing a lot of uh, work on the Peter Reid case. Can you just explain what the story is so far for people who don't know anything about this? Yeah, so Peter Reid is a... Uh, or was until a few years ago, the head of physics at James Cook University in Townsville. Uh, and he's a marine geophysicist and, and has been studying the Great Barrier Reef for uh, since 19, the 1980s, you know, longer than I've been alive. So he knows what he's talking about. And a few years ago, he started to speak out against this idea that the conventional wisdom that climate change is, quote, killing the Great Barrier Reef. Um, and he also made some comments about the quality of the science and the quality assurance processes of the university and, and his colleagues, by implication, saying that the science was a bit sloppy, saying that, you know, the, the reef was bleaching and dying and then it was all going to disappear. Um, no sooner had he done that, the university started hitting him with all manner of complaints, disciplinary hearings. He, they searched his emails. They told him he couldn't talk about the disciplinary process to anybody, not even his own wife. Uh, and eventually they terminated him. So the Peter, rather than going off quietly, Peter engaged some lawyers that the IPA helped him find and took James Cook University to court and won. Uh, but then James Cook appealed to the federal court. They won. So now um, Peter is appealing to the high court on the basis that he was unlawfully terminated. And relevantly for the liberty movement, he's, he's, apl he's applying under a section of his EBA, effectively his employment contract, that guarantees academic and intellectual freedom. So the High Court case, if it gets leave to be heard, will 
be a direct test case on the meaning of intellectual freedom uh, under the Australian common law. And uh, it's a very, very important case because when you look at what's happening at universities, uh, we need some sort of precedent that says intellectual freedom still matters. But in a, in a uh, public policy sense, in a philosophical sense, it's what the Australian law, common law says again about intellectual freedom. There's an extraordinary paragraph in the federal court's judgment, which is available online, that's saying that whatever, you know, Isaiah Berlin and, um, you know, John Locke and others wrote about academic freedom is not really relevant anymore because of the growth of social media and Twitter mobs. So you have the situation in which the penultimate court, the second highest court in the land, is basically saying that, is giving legal recognition to the notion that Twitter mobs should define the boundaries of free speech. This is, this is really serious. This is really serious. We have public institutions that are failing to stand up for, for ancient and genuine human rights, arguably the most important right, which is freedom of speech. Once, once you lose freedom of speech, what else is left? As I said on your wonderful documentary, uh, Randall, which everybody should watch, um, uh, another way, um, but good luck finding it on YouTube because it's been shadow banned. But <laughs> in another way, I said, as you recall, freedom of speech is not one speech among many. It is our most important right of all because it goes down to our innermost thoughts, to our, to our ability to express ourselves. So regulating what people can say is one step away from regulating what you, they can think. Uh, in fact, it is a de facto regulation of what they can think. Um, they can think because they can't express themselves. It is, it is quite literally, you know, an, an entree into 1984. And Peter wouldn't be the only one in this situation, correct? There would be others who are just too afraid to, to stand up to the acad academic pressure or pressure from their fellow colleagues. Oh, there are. There are, um, there are many academics, many of whom I've spoken to, many of whom, you know, are a member of the public record. Bob Carter, the late Bob Carter, was handed out of JCU for the climate change as well. Uh, Ian Plymer certainly lost a lot of friends in academia when he started questioning climate change. Um, but there, you're right, there are many more that are afraid to come forward because look what happened to Peter. And even if you're like Peter Reid and you can raise over a million bucks to defend yourself in court, even then you might lose because of the uh, vagaries of our judicial system. So, you know, an academic with a young family who effectively has to choose between speaking the truth and putting bread on the table. But interestingly, I did a podcast about Peter Ridd uh, called The Heretic, which is available on iTunes, Spotify, and YouTube for anybody who's looking for something else to listen to after this excellent podcast. Um, uh, I did, uh, and for that, I interviewed a bloke named Michael McNally, who's the Queensland Secretary of the National Tertiary Education Union. As you can imagine, Somebody from the, the policy director of the IPA going to the um, NTU is a bit like Nixon going to, to Red China. But we got along very well, I must say, because to the NTU's credit, uh, there's a lot we disagree on, to be sure, but they are very, very, very good about defending academic freedom. You have to give them credit for that. They are, they are the ones who insist that the intellectual freedom right be written into every EBA. So anyway, what I, was, I, I talked to him about how deep the problem goes. And he said to me, you know, university administrators are interfering with academic freedom every day on some level. It could be something as, as minor as, well, no, you can't publish in this journal, you have to publish in, a, in an A-star journal called, you know, because that affects our rankings and our prestige. But, you know, universities are becoming so corporatized and so driven by where their next grant is coming from and where their next set of international students can live that they're losing sight of their mission. Now that creates a very, I'm getting off track here, but it's an important point to make. It creates a very vexed issue for libertarians because on the one hand, you know, when a week to complain about something being run for profit and with an eye to the bottom line. But secondly, and this is the point I make, the 
university, if the university was a wholly private, they could do whatever they want. And maybe they should be. You know, I'm sure there are many of your listeners who agree, who think they should be, and I don't necessarily disagree. But for as long as we are funding universities as public institutions and public squares of open intellectual inquiry, the very least taxpayers can ask for is for these, for these institutions to work as they should and allow for every view to be uh, ventilated, uh, considered and shot down with other counter arguments if, if it's a particularly bad idea. But having going from you know places where ideas can be explored to places where you know rigid dogma has to be regurgitated by students so they can get a piece of expensive paper with one's name on it, that's um that, that that's that's not what the deal is with taxpayers and with uh, and, and that's not the mission of a public university to the extent they have a place in in the twenty first century and I, and and. I don't know if they do anymore. Uh, as a matter of principle, you know, of course, I think they should be privatised. Um, but, you know, there, there's something to be said for, I guess, places of, of where, where the community at large can gather and, and thresh out these ideas. But um, that's, not, that's not happening at the moment. So why is, it, why is it always climate change or gender or pronouns that end up going to court? over these things why is it so bad to speak out against these things geez why is it so bad well i mean look the conspiracy theory in me says there's a and and it's not that far-fetched a conspiracy is that a lot of this is driven by again financial reasons i mean that you don't think about it this way would, would malcolm turnbull have given almost a quarter of a billion dollars to an obscure foundation called the great barrier reef foundation which nobody ever heard of if there was no problem to solve uh, james cook university makes a lot of its money from reef science and I, I'm not sure if the money would be there if the reef was hunky-dory. So there may be an element of that. And I think it's just become... I think we've entered to such a sub-rational phase of, of the public debate where, where, where ideas are inherently dangerous. I think that's the worst part about... You know, the, the number of people who've said to me by criticising the Andrews over the lockdown on being irresponsible because it may lead to people flouting the rules and therefore infecting other people. Firstly, I'd never encourage anybody to break the law, much as I vehemently disagree with a lot of them. But secondly, since when is... This is an incitement to violence. This isn't, you know, somebody saying, go and get some Molotov cocktails and chuck chuck them at, you know, a public building. I'm just... I'm I'm making a critique of public policy. But so many people are saying, you know, that's an irresponsible thing to say. We're getting to the stage where ideas in themselves are dangerous, not least of all so-called climate denial, um, because you'll find academics galore and, and, you know, the, the, the... blue tick uh, mob on Twitter saying, oh, you know, we're, we're being killed because of decades of climate denialism. No, that's patently untrue. I wish the government did take notice of climate sceptics and, and wasn't spending billions of dollars on pinwheels and sunshine, but clearly they are. I mean, but this, this is the thing. This is the thing that you, 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 get, you get, you know, th- there's a very real sense in, in, in the court of public opinion, at least, of a, of a thought crime. And that's why we're getting such blowback against these uh, things that, uh, by the way, go so against the grain of common sense. The, 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 the gen- they, they oscillate between saying gender is so important we have to talk about it every hour of the day, and by the way, there are about 200 of them, to saying gender is a complete social construct. And, and the minute you speak out against that, uh, not, not, not that I do particularly much because it's not really a focus of IPA research, but the minute you say, well, that's, that's pretty dumb, oh, well, you're a transphobe and you want you know, young transphobic kids to kill themselves. I mean, it's just, it's just a very, very unhelpful tone of the public debate. 
So where where is this case now? How long until the appeal? What's what's the IPA doing at the moment? So we don't know when the IP, uh, appeal is going to be yet. In fact, I don't even know when the, the hearing to get special leave will take place. And, and for those of you that aren't, that are lucky enough not to be lawyers, uh, the, the High Court doesn't hear every case that's put to it. It has to determine whether it's of public importance, which this clearly is, but I don't even know when that hearing is happening. So watch this space, I suspect, sometime within the next 12 months. But uh, the, the IPA has, as always, will be covering every aspect of the case, will be presenting our research program on what the red matter means for not just climate change debate, but the future of basic liberties in the Western world. Um, and in the meantime, if any of your listeners want to donate to the Peter Reed Legal Fighting Fund, because don't forget, Peter's raising his money from a GoFundMe page and uh, JC, you're using our tax dollars to hire Brett Walker, who charges something like twenty dollars to $30,000 a day to shut down one academic. Uh, if any of your listeners want to donate to the war effort, just Google Peter Reed GoFundMe. Uh, he's already raised about $450,000, but the target is $600,000. Uh, and then we've done that in, geez, uh, just over a week. Wow. It will take. So pl- plenty of patriots are dipping into their wallets, but that's the only way we can defeat these people. We cannot we cannot afford, and we as in, you know, people who are notionally conservative and the so-called quiet Australians, we cannot afford to sit on the sidelines anymore. If you don't take an interest in politics, politics, politics can take an interest in you, or so the old adage goes. Uh, we have to fight to take our basic, basic freedoms back. There's no other way. Well put, well put. And where can people learn more about you personally? Uh, so best way, probably Twitter, uh, Gideon C. Rosner, or on Facebook, my page is The Full Rosner. R-O-Z-N-E-R, um, but also at ipa.org.au and you can see all our research and all our content and also the Institute of Public Affairs on uh, all the social media channels as well. Um, there's plenty of, uh, plenty of the good oil there for, uh, for patriotic libertarians to, to get their, their head around. Perfect. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Mate, always a pleasure. And I can't say this enough. Uh, more people need to see your, your movie. It is... It is uh, you know, if, if, if it got the publicity it, it deserved, it could change the damn country. So, uh, you know, always in the trenches for you. Well, that's all we have for you today. Make sure you follow us on your favorite platform by searching for the Political Deactivist Podcast. You can also find us on YouTube. We have been shadow banned, but I'm sure you'll be able to find us. You can also find us on Facebook. Now, I'd like to leave you with this. This is the motto of James Cook University. Where there is knowledge to be found and shared, there is light that will continue to increase through the ones who are committed to sharing it. Unless, of course, it interferes with our revenue stream, then we'll take out the batteries of that torch and smack whoever that is over the head with it. See you guys next time.